0: Let's bow before the Lord, who is the author of this word, and let's ask Him to help us understand His word together today. Father, we thank you that you are worthy to be worshiped. Lord, you are the source of all truth and light and wisdom and power and glory. Everything comes from you, Lord. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you're not the unknown God. You are the God who is knowable, and you have spoken to us. We thank you for the revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ, the living word. We thank you for the revelation of yourself in the written word of God. And now we pray that you might instruct our hearts, help us to learn, we pray, help us to understand you and your ways. And to most of all, understand Christ even more and appreciate him all the more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sadly, it is a scenario that is repeated all too often. A person who is committed to God, a person who's determined to carry out what may be at times difficult, God-given tasks, is confronted by well-intentioned, friends or Christian uh, cohorts, and they are at that moment trying to persuade that person to abandon that difficult task that they're going to do in faithfulness and obedience to God. We think of Job's wife, who after hearing all this compounded news of things going from bad to worse to the worse, and how she speaks to her husband and says, just curse God and die, just end it all. Or you think about that incident about Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, in which his disciples, having been asked the question, you know, Jesus said, who do you think that I am? And they asked the question correctly. They said, we think you're the Messiah. We think you are the anointed one from God, which is their way of identifying him as the son of the living God. He is the one who is a position of supreme power and glory and authority. He is the person who is Lord over all correct answer but what happens next surprisingly jesus then says to his disciples listen he says i must go to jerusalem and in jerusalem i'm going to suffer many things from the elders and from the chief priests from the scribes and other words, all the religious leaders and i will be killed i'll be raised up on the third day and peter takes jesus aside jesus the Messiah, the the Lord, the the Master, the one who is in charge of all things, he takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, and he says, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, my Master, the one who's in charge of everything. This shall never happen to you. There are so many ironies in that incident, are there? It's just amazing when every time I read it and think about it, that here is a subordinate telling his lord and his master, you may not do this, you must not do this, this should never ever happen. And he's telling the one who has supreme authority what he really should be allowed to do or not to do based on what makes sense to the the person who is really very low on the totem pole of authority and power. Even Jesus had people around him who thought he was wrong for doing what the Father had planned for him to do. Especially if it involved suffering and even death. So my question I want to raise this morning as we look into Acts 21, if you want want to find your way there in your Bible, Acts 21 is, how do we deal with well-intentioned people who urge us not to carry out what we understand to be God's will? How do we resist the pressure from perhaps well-intentioned peers of ours who, when they understand what's ha- ahead for us, they will try to persuade us to go onto the path of least resistance when following the, the God's leading in our lives, when really... God is calling us to walk the path of difficulty. He's calling us to walk the path of rejection when we faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel. So I'd like us to look now at Acts 21, verse first 16 verses, and try to notice that there might be several insights we're going to gain here into the dynamics of what I believe is portrayed for us, unwavering conviction to obey God despite the pressure being put on Paul to compromise or even shirk his God given duty. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when it came about that we had departed from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day, and the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own hand his own feet and hands and said this is what the holy spirit says in this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles and when they had heard this when we had heard this we were well We, as well as the local residents, began begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. And after these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. Again, I'm looking for several dynamics into the understanding of this pressure that we must resist when it comes to pressure to compromise doing God's will. First thing I would say is, what are the sources of the pressure? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> my allergies are at their peak uh, effectiveness these last couple weeks so please bear with me here. Um, the first point here is what are the sources of the pressure that could begin to push against us encouraging us to not do what God would have us do? Well, we read in Acts chapter 20, we've noticed this last week that Paul had already noticed and mentioned to those around him as they're making this trek now on his third missionary journey, he is now uh, sort of repeating or going back to where he's already been, heading back to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 16 says that. And then he says it this way in chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and, affection, and afflictions await me. So he knows full well, it's been told him in advance, things are not going to go well. He's going to be arrested there, and he's going to get into all kinds of difficulty and trouble and hardship. And then, as he makes his way across the Mediterranean Sea, now he's on the east coast <clears throat> there in Tyre, which is the northern part there. He lands there, and the disciples there kept telling him, not once, but numerous times, don't dare step afoot in Jerusalem. In chapter 21, verse 4, it's what we read. And then in Caesarea, he's going down the coast now, and now he's further a little south from Tyre. He goes to Caesarea, a very large city. And there's a prophet named Agabus, who, interestingly enough, repeats what the, what the Old Testament prophets numerously, numerous times did, where they would actually portray, dramatically, something that they're going to prophesy is going to happen. So he literally takes Paul's belt, and he ties his own hands, his own feet, and sort of portrays the fact that here's Paul, you're going to be arrested. And once again, what happens as a result of this affirmation of what's going to happen? The people there in that town, they beg him, please, Paul, don't go. Don't complete the trip to Jerusalem. Now, who is doing all this exhorting? Who's putting all this pressure on Paul in this particular incident? Who is encouraging him to abandon doing the will of God? Well, it's people that he loved, people that he respected. And indeed, it was his brothers and sisters in Christ. They were doing their best to repeatedly persuade him to abandon these plans to go to Jerusalem. And why is that? Because they were looking out for the person they loved and cared about. They didn't want to see him being imprisoned. They didn't want to see him being uh, perhaps exposed to more danger. They didn't want to see him taken out of circulation. They wanted him, the fact that he could continue to do the ministry he's been doing. But Paul's not looking for their advice or counsel. He's determined to fulfill his promise and his promise was, listen, I am promised to assist those folks back in Jerusalem. I've been collecting money to do that and that's where I'm going next. Now it seems to me that None of us should be shocked or surprised if we have people who are close to us. People that we know at times, including our family, including our friends, including yes, our fellow church members who at times may give us unwise counsel. They may give us advice that sounds good to them, that sounds like, well, this makes the most sense to me, but it may be the kind of advice that really is not helpful and may steer us away from doing what God calls us to do. I'm sure all of us have played that part for other people, haven't we? Haven't we all sort of played the part that Peter played? When we insist that God's will is, you know, it's ill-advised to really do this. Uh, You know, I wouldn't suggest that you go ahead. It doesn't seem appropriate if you're going to go in this direction. And somehow we think that instead of pursuing God's clearly revealed will, all of us at times try to steer people like a divine GPS. You know, we always are looking for the most direct, the least congested, the shortest route to doing God's will. When sometimes we've been counseled by others to steer clear of what? People will encourage us to say, well, you know, that, sound, miss, that situation sounds a little messy. I wouldn't get involved in that conflict over there with that person who now is not speaking to you any longer. That's not biblical wise counsel. That's telling you to just sort of avoid problems. Rather than what? Rather than biblically speak to the person privately, uh, seek them out, try to make things right with their brother, humble yourself, pray about it, and seek the Lord's will to make things right. How about sometimes when we say to ourselves, well, you know, I don't think I maybe should be saying what I know I should be saying in this situation about the gospel or who christ is or what it means to repent and follow christ and and so maybe sometimes i'm going to hold back and shy away from sharing my faith because i don't want to offend this person over here that's not very good counsel to listen to in speaking to ourselves sometimes isn't it true that we try to dissuade some of our young people young people who are open to and prayerfully considering and beginning training to go into ministry vocational ministry and there are those among us who sometimes will say well listen i'm not sure that's a wise decision to make because you know you're really not going to make a whole lot of money you're not going to enjoy the kind of lifestyle that we think you deserve to enjoy and therefore we're dissuading you we're trying to discourage you from considering that path that's not good counsel Not if the God's calling them to do it. Isn't it true sometimes even we as grandparents, I can't believe I'm in this category, even we as grandparents can say things and take actions in regard to dealing with our grandchildren that we sometimes are undermining the authority of our grown adult children who should be confronting the rebellion of our precious little grandchildren. And oftentimes we're trying to mediate around that and trying to smooth out that awkwardness or that difficulty, that confrontation that's going on. And sometimes that's undermining the authority and the things which, which our children are, are commanded by God to be doing. And isn't it true that oftentimes we, as professing believers, we don't always provide the most most helpful counsel to each other when we somehow are maybe acting as if we know God's will when sometimes we don't know the full things that God has planned regarding His will for us. Well, that's my first point. Sometimes the source of that authority can be people that we know and love. And I'm not saying they're doing it for a bad reason. They're doing it out of their own love. But I'm just saying... Be aware it's people that we know and love all around us. Secondly, I'd like to look at this context and think about not only the sources of the pressure, but what are the causes of this pressure to give up doing what God would have us do in specific situations? And obviously, the first answer to this question, in being tempted not to do what God's will is, is because of human wisdom, human wisdom. Wisdom. Because if we are finite and fallible people, we have an inaccurate assumptions oftentimes about what God's will includes. For example, have you ever noticed the widespread assumption by people that you know, or maybe it's an assumption that you yourself operate by, in which you assume that God's will never should ever include hardships in your life or difficulties or any times of suffering. And somehow you draw that conclusion based on when something is not going very well in your mind and there's untold difficulty, trouble, and and trials, you begin to say, man, God, where did I get off track here? Where, Where are you? Why did all these things happen? And we all of a sudden conclude, this cannot be what God wants me to deal with. I find it interesting that Peter had that kind of mindset, right? Earlier in his discipling days... And he tells Jesus, no, you should have nothing to do with suffering as a Messiah. Then he learns a lot of things based on the fact of what did happen with Christ. And so you fast forward 30 years from the time in which Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, that you uh, should have these things happen to you. What does he do now? He talks to his own peers in about uh, mid or uh, like 60 AD to his fellow followers of Jesus and the Roman Empire is beginning to put the squeeze onto followers of Jesus, and there's growing growing persecution against them. And listen to what Peter now is saying to people who are suffering in this awful persecution. He writes them in 1 Peter chapter 3. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It's God's will. If, if, if you're going to suffer, you at least ought to suffer for doing what's right. And then he says this in chapter 419, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to their wise creator in doing what is right. He's admitting that God, God's will at times is for his people to suffer, even for when they're doing right. That is not human wisdom. That is a a way of looking at life that clearly has been changed by God's revelation and God's ways. I wonder, do you do what you do because it's easy, because it's fulfilling, or because God has called you to do it? You know, Paul, in Acts chapter 9 is confronted in his sin and when he is brought to his knees and when he has a dramatic conversion in his life, he was told on that occasion that he has now been chosen. You're a chosen instrument that now belongs to me, God says, and you are to bear the name of Christ before Gentiles and highfalutin political people, kings and all these different Caesars, whatever, and you are to bring to the, the sons of Israel the gospel in the name of Christ and I'm, he says, I will show you, Paul, how much you must suffer for my name's sake. It's interesting that Jesus warned his followers that if we follow him, we may indeed be treated with people who ostracize us. They may mock us. They may revile us. They may shun us. But that's part of what God's will is for his people. What situation are you in? When you comes when it comes to discipling and teaching your children, it's not easy, is it? When you have to confront the willfulness of your child again, this is the fourth time today we've had to deal with this issue of obedience. When you have to come and stop what you're doing and take all this time and go back into the basics again and, and go through this child and confront them and sit down with them and bring to bear... A uh, consequences of chastisement, it's tiresome, but that is what is involved in doing the will of God. Some of us perhaps are aware of people in our lives who have fallen into sin. They've got caught in a trespass, Galatians 6 1. And at that point we are called to rescue or restore that person, a fellow believer. And what does that mean? That means we have to bear one another's burdens. We get involved in their situation. We now have to uh, continually speak into their life. We're praying for them. We're now having to go over this, reminding them again. We have to keep uh, calling them out and seeking them out. We have to spend time with them to help them understand the issues of their hearts. It's not easy. But that's the will of God. And when it comes to witnessing and Sharing our faith with some people, we know it's a process for many people, a long process. It takes a long, long time for some people to hear and understand the truth and to have their hearts changed and they respond in faith. And it takes time. It takes patience in dealing with people who have a proud attitude toward God. People who are blind, people who question so much of what you say and don't take it with a humble, teachable heart, and they uh, sort of push back on everything you say. Yes, they might come with you with an attitude, but that's what we're called to do, is to be patient in doing the will of God, sharing our faith time after time. So it could be the fact that it is our own way of thinking and our human reason, but there's also another, I think, a cause for why sometimes the pressure we feel to not or compromise doing God's will that is because we tend to look at our situation from a short term view rather than a long term view. What do I mean by that? Well, our focus tends to be on the immediate. Just like Paul's friends and his cohorts in the first century, they're thinking about Paul the fact that, listen, you've been through a lot already, Paul. We don't want to see you suffer anymore. We don't want to see you now be taken out of circulation. And so we know that, obviously, that was a short-term concern of theirs. But, you know, it's interesting, they at that time had no way of understanding what was going to happen after the moment Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Because once he's arrested, does life just sort of stop for him? No, it's like a whole series, which is the rest of the book of Acts, which is many of the the epistles uh, yet to be written as he talks and writes from Rome. But the point is, he says... He eventually makes his way from Jerusalem, when he, where he is arrested, and then he's, he's making his way to Caesarea. He's there for several, long, long time, and uh, he's talking to all kinds of people who are coming and going through that area, and then he's chaperoned by a, star, a soldier to Rome, and there he is able to share the gospel with all sorts of important people as well as a bunch of people who are ordinary people that we don't even know their names, And isn't it interesting that because of all this eventually he meets up with a guy named Onesimus who he wins to Christ as a runaway slave and is sending him back to Philemon which is a whole book of the Bible written about forgiveness. There's a lot of things that happened that these people couldn't see about what Paul's ministry was to be like once he was arrested in Jerusalem. Isn't that true also of Other people in scriptures, we look at short-term, can't see the long-term. Joseph. Joseph has one act of betrayal, injustice, followed by another form of injustice, followed by another person breaking their word and forgetting about him, and here he is stuck in prison all this time. An example of someone who suffers so many times unjustly, accused falsely. And yet, what is the point of this whole story of his life as you step back and you say if you had judged his life on the short term you would have said what a disaster what a mess what a ridiculous you know we live in such a terrible world we all become cynical but he 13 years later from the time in which he is sold into slavery until the time he is then made second in command in egypt God is saying, Listen, I have a purpose for seeing all these things happen. You're here to rescue countless numbers of people. I have you here for a reason. It's the longer view of life. And I wonder if that isn't true for some of us when we think about our own experiences. Rereading 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God comforts us in our sorrows, in our troubles. In the difficulties we go through in life, which we deal with on a short-term basis, and it's so hard, and it is so difficult, and there are times we want to give up because it's so painful. But God says, I am there to minister to you and to comfort you because, listen, I'm going to take what you're dealing with now. You can't understand this. You'll never see it in the short term. But in the longer term of life, I can take you from what you have gone through here and now I've comforted you, and now you can comfort other people in their sorrows, in the bigger picture of life when you step back and look what God is able to do. I hope that's been clear in some of the fact of the causes there. Sometimes we have such short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking or our own human reason. Thirdly, I just want to point out quickly here that how do we resist this pressure to compromise and not follow through on doing the things that we know God would have us do? I just have a couple suggestions here very quickly. One is to remember who called us. Remember who called you. You see, our challenge is to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. And as we read this account of Paul, it is a fascinating account. I hope you will read through uh, the book of Acts a little bit more here to get a flow of where where we're going here. But as you read this account, it's interesting that, of course, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So this is his second book now when we get to Acts. And it's interesting to see, I think, the similarities that Luke deliberately develops here to show the similarities of what happened to Christ is also happening now to Paul. Because if we read in Luke 9, verse 5, this is what not even halfway through the book of Luke's Gospel, we come to this interesting text about Jesus. It says that he resolutely set his face to go where? To Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Well, the book unfolds that. Obviously, it's not going to be something pleasant. It's not going to be something that's uh, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a mere celebration. It is, he is going there to suffer, to be the sacrificial lamb, as it were. And so it says, Luke 9, 5, resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the same chapter, 9, verse 53, Jesus was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. So that the rest of the book indicates that that Jesus has his primary objective is to know that he's going to be faithful to do the will of the Father. Nothing is going to turn him away from doing that. Jesus, of course, was the only one who perfectly did the will of his Father. As a matter of fact, Jesus had all sorts of pressure from from all different sides, pushing him to do what they thought he should be doing, including the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. His own disciples telling him at times, No, 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 let's not do this, Lord. The crowds wanting to make him king and just make him their political provider for them. You know, They had their agenda. His family, his literal brothers and sisters and mother had their agenda, what they thought should be right for him. It was the devil in the wilderness saying, no, you ought to do this. And he did not cave to any of those pressures. And this is the key thing to understand, my friends. Jesus in yielding to his father in all matters, especially in the matter of his ultimate obedience and laying down his life, allowing himself to be brutalized and killed by those Roman soldiers, allowing himself to bear the wrath of his father, which we deserve, he did that, that we might be spared the punishment that we deserve because we are people who don't do the will of the Father. And therefore, it's because Jesus was faithful, He delighted in doing the will of His Father. So much so, it says in John 4 that Jesus is out ministering to this woman at the, at the well there in Samaria. He's talking to people that He's stepping over all sorts of cultural boundaries and awkwardness and difficulty and he's ministering to this woman talking about himself and the spiritual issues of her heart and he says to his disciples later on he says my food is to do the will of him who sent me what's he saying he's saying that he finds greater satisfaction in witnessing to this lost woman and showing her the glories of his salvation and offering to her this is far more satisfying than enjoying whatever he could possibly enjoy in terms of eating. Now, that's a radical statement for some of us because we like to eat, right? But he's saying, I enjoy doing what God wants me to do. What a contrast with you and me, right? We're so easily pushed off of doing the things that God calls us to do. And we become, however, an object of God's delight even though we failed to obey God, because why? Jesus died in our place. Jesus was raised from the dead for us. And therefore, I want us to make sure we understand the gospel helps us as we try not to cave into the pressure as to remember how much we're loved by God, how much we're accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And secondly, I just another suggestion to help resisting the pressure is to learn to rest in the sovereign hand of God. Learning to rest in the sovereign hand of God. Again, reading through the book of Acts, you see another interesting thing about the Apostle Paul that's really stunning when you think about it. It's the fact that not only is there, are there plots, there is a plot to murder him once, which we read about in 9, chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, Early on, when he was first saved, there were people out to destroy him. But then we also read in chapter 20 last week, where he was going to go a certain way by ship, and he hears about a plot to probably throw him overboard and get rid of him. He chooses to go by land, changes his plans, and then we read in chapter 23, when he's in Caesarea, there's another plot that he hears about, where they're determining and trying to scheme as to how they're going to knock him off and destroy him and and kill him. Paul, I think in all of these schemes that are going on in this book, you can just sense that Paul's confident that what? His life is in God's hands. His life is in God's hands. For him to live is Christ. And he was assured that his life was under the control of the one who saved him the one who called him, the one who guaranteed that he would one day be completely and fully glorified. So I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what is your quote-unquote zip code of where you do life every day. Maybe it's in a situation where you're on a fixed income and you're saying, I don't know how God can expect me to do X, Y, Z if I'm just dealing with this every week. Maybe it's the fact that you are dealing with a situation where your parents are divorced. And your family's not the way you would ever want it to have been. But that's where you are. That's where you have to deal with life. Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter that you thought I never could ever imagine this would have been the way it all turned out at the end. and Yet that's what you're facing. Maybe you have some sort of physical disability or you have some kind of physical ailment or disease or some problem you're dealing with. And that's where God has you living your life. Can you trust that God is sovereign and He has you where He wants you and therefore you can do His will where He has you by His grace? One other idea I would like to suggest to help us against the idea of pressure to not do what God wants us to do is to replace the fear of other people with a real awe and holy fear of God. Sometimes we're more willing to yield to the pressure and persuasion of others when deep down we are craving their approval. When we want them to think highly of us. So, if you look at chapter 21, verse 14, notice what Paul says when he's being persuaded. And you can tell there's not just one or two comments. This is like a, a re- repeated, I call it a, you know, a record that's just stuck. For those of you who don't know what that means, but A record uh, where it just repeats and repeats and repeats. Well, they keep saying to him um, to please don't go there. And verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, they finally gave up. Stop saying it. His heart was tied up. Verse 13, he says, listen, I'm not going to be jailed in Jerusalem, and I'm ready to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. That is my agenda, is to lay down my life if that's what I'm called to do. So it's the point here is that he's not living for their praise, he's living for Christ. What a difference. What a difference. We read in Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, please people, he says, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So being a follower of Christ means we cannot be giving a loyalty to other people that's higher than our loyalty to Christ. So I want to point out this quote from a very helpful book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. When people are big and God is small by Ed Welch. He has this quotes in your notes. Reverential obedience, that is, Out of a sense of holy awe and reverence before God, I obey Him, is one of the great blessings of the fear of the Lord. We think less often about ourselves. When a heart is being filled with the greatness of God, there is less room for the question, what are people going to think of me? That's so true. And so the motivation and longings of our hearts reveals what we consider to be in our hearts the truest treasure and pleasing Jesus, the one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us, or pleasing and loving ourselves by striving to gain the approval of others. Those really are the two contrasts in different ways of living. My friend, only the gospel can liberate us from the compulsion of striving to please, uh, to be a person who no longer is, being a people pleaser, but to be a person who lives to please Christ. It's the gospel that gives us that motivation to keep doing that no matter what people are telling you and trying to convince you otherwise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today and we admit that we as a people have a tendency to cave to the persuasion of other people to man's wisdom to short term thinking to doing what makes sense to us or others rather than doing what you've clearly told us to do and have made very clear to us is your will for us so we ask again father that you would work in our hearts that we might have the same Desire that you worked in Paul's heart and you worked in the heart of our Lord Jesus. That when we battle against a divided mind and divided heart, that you would remind us of what Christ has done for us. That you would remind us that you're right here with us and you have sovereignly placed us where we are. That you would remind us that we are a people who are under construction and that you have reasons for doing what you're doing, and that we can't see the full picture yet. But Lord, we pray that we might be a people who, more than anything, long to be obedient and to do what you ask us to do, not because we have to, but because we love to. We delight to do your will. Lord, we have a lot to learn in order to get there, but we pray that you would show us that. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.